0: Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. All right, week six, Kings and Kingdoms. If you've been here, you know that we're journeying through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. If you're just tuning in today, you can catch up on YouTube or the podcast. But today, uh, we're in the end of 1 Kings. We're in chapter 21. I'm going to read you a story that's 16 verses long this morning. And before I read it, i want to set the stage for you, just in case you're just tuning in. This First and Second Kings was written about the monarchical era of ancient Israel. It's about a 400-year span. We're at a point in the story where there's just been a civil war. The north has divided and, and, and left the south. The north is Israel. The south is Judah. There's 10 tribes in the north and 2 tribes in the south, and, and they're going head-to-head, head and they go head-to-head to head for, head head for 200 years at war with one another. The people of God fighting and killing one another. And what we've talked about a couple times is that in the north, specifically, every king seems to get worse and worse and worse. It's down and to the right. There's not a good trajectory for the north. And the king during this story that I'm going to read today is King Ahab. It's the king of the north that's, there's the most that's written about Ahab, more than any other king of the north. And one of the reasons why is one of the things it says about Ahab is that he did more evil. In the eyes of the Lord than anyone else before him. He makes deals with foreign idolatrous vile kings and he oppresses the people in his own kingdom. To summarize Ahab, he doesn't know how to fight his enemies and he doesn't know how to protect his friends and he's a whiner. In the words of my father-in-law, he is a wet potato chip of a man. And his wife Jezebel is perhaps even worse than him. She's the daughter of a foreign vile king. And you'll see the evil in her heart on display too. Keep this in mind, they rule over 83% of the promised land. Their kingdom is massive. And that's where we find ourselves in this 16-verse story. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll talk about it for the remainder of our time this morning. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. There's Ahab. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for my vegetable garden. Since it is close to my palace, in exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the, in, the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. And in those letters, this is what she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed God and the king and then take him out. Follow the law and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. And then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. And so they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. And then they sent the word to Jezebel Naboth has been stoned to death. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up! Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive but dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Nathan's Naboth's vineyard. And all God's people said, Yikes! You read that, and it's it's almost hard to believe that that story's in the Bible. And, And when you read a story like that in the Old Testament, you go, how in the world could this apply to my life? This insane king with an evil wife who just takes what isn't theirs by setting up a kangaroo trial and killing Naboth and his family. So this is in the valley of Jezreel. What do you know about Jezreel? Jezreel in Hebrew means God will sow. And I'll sign up for any land that is described as a a land that God will sow. It is fertile. They have adequate water supply. This is a picture of the valley of Jezreel today. This is the land. The ancestors of Naboth and Ahab, coincidentally, They spied out this land centuries before this, and and the report about the land was that the land is flowing with milk and honey. It is good land. There can be crops there. There's water there. This is the land they were talking about, Jezreel. Naboth has a vineyard in Jezreel. His great-great-great-grandparents were the ones that settled this land. And when they settled this land, Naboth's great, great, great grandparents, they were the first ones to own this little vineyard in the middle of Jezreel. And they've passed it on from generation to generation, and now Naboth is the one that owns this vineyard. Ahab recently moved there. Archaeologists agree that because of the water supply, the strategic military location, the, the adequate grazing for all of his animals. Jezreel becomes a base for Ahab's chariot corps and his army. He builds a second palace there, and life is good in the valley of Jezreel. And when life is good for a king like Ahab, man, Ahab starts feeling himself a little bit. Ahab wants to know what else he can have, who else he can conquer. And one day, Ahab is out on the on the porch of his palace looking around and he looks down at his neighbor and he sees this fruitful beautiful vineyard and he goes I want to grow some vegetables there and he sees what he doesn't have but but he wants it have you ever seen anything that you wanted really really badly you ever seen anything that you wanted really really badly what comes to mind You ever been in line, you've saved up, you've saved up and you're in the, you're in the regular customer line of the Moo Moo car wash and then somebody just buzzes by you at the unlimited creme de la creme with a little sticker on their windshield and the, the thing just goes up and they just, they're just doing it for fun. They just do it as like an errand for fun, get the kids a lollipop. You ever seen anything that you wanted really really badly you ever seen somebody's spring break spring break family pictures somebody else got the promotion that you deserved somebody else has the family you want you're at a wedding as a bridesmaid or a groomsman again you ever you ever seen anything that you wanted really really badly this text, this story wants us to ask questions to ourselves about our desires and our appetites. This text shows us the danger of having an insatiable desire to have more. It's not, this is important, it's not an anti-entrepreneurial text telling the people of God to play small. If God has wired you to be a builder, an entrepreneur, a go-getter, well then you need to steward that gifting and take risks and be bold and build your business or whatever it is that you do and make money and write checks to employees and to ministries and to people in need. You need to steward that gift too. This is not a text that says, play small, don't be a go-getter. It's not what it's about. But this text is asking us to consider the question, how much is enough? It details the curse of what's called unchecked acquisitiveness, Where we're wired to say, acquire, acquire, acquire. We've got to get the next property. We've got to remodel the next room. We've got to get the next thing. I've got to get the next promotion. I've got to seal the next deal. We've got to win the next game. Have you ever in your life had a hard time enjoying the goodness of God because you've already moved on to the next thing? tonight someone will win the Super Bowl. It is the pinnacle of American sports. And mark my words, tomorrow on ESPN.com, there will be the preseason rankings of who will win the Super Bowl in 2025. They won't even give them six hours to enjoy winning the Super Bowl before they're being asked if they can win it again. Have you ever ever had a hard time enjoying the goodness of God because you're already moving on to the next thing? This text gives us permission to stop and look around and acknowledge all that we already have and say things like, God, I, I have enough. Where I live, where I work, what my life looks like, my church, I have enough. I don't need more. This is enough. You see, King Ahab, back to the story in a worldly sense, he owns 83% of the promised land. He's doing pretty well. And he has this insatiable desire for more. And so he makes Naboth an offer. Hey, I'll buy your vineyard or I'll give you an even bigger vineyard. It's a reasonable offer, but Naboth says, "If I sold you my land, I would be selling the story of my ancestors. This is my inheritance. Some things Ahab are not for sale. What understa- excuse me, Naboth, sorry, what Naboth understands, that Ahab does not understand, is that the most valuable things in our lives can't be appraised. They don't have a market value. And so Ahab goes and whines and sulks like a wet potato chip in his bedroom. He has 83% of the kingdom, but all he can think about is this little vineyard that's next to his palace. He's like a kid. He's like a kid, like like you take a six-year-old boy to Chuck E. Cheese for two hours, you give him the bracelet that has unlimited plays, and he just runs around a machine to machine to machine, collecting tokens, and then when the time's up and mom or dad says, hey, it's time to roll. There's this physical meltdown where they're laying on the ground screaming because they, they wanted a glow-in-the-dark sticker. And, then, and, and because they can't get the glow-in-the-dark sticker after two hours of paradise for a six-year-old boy makes his mom or dad kind of drag him out to the parking lot while they cry. This is the picture of Ahab, who has everything and he's like, I want that vineyard. And he goes and sulks in his bedroom and doesn't eat any food. And his wife, Jezebel, she's not used to following the laws. See, the laws say you can't take somebody's property. And as chaotic as things were at the time, there are some Jewish laws that still aren't being broken. Ahab isn't willing to cross that line, at least at this time. But, but Jezebel conjures up this other plan. She frames him. She sets up this kangaroo trial And Naboth is convicted and he and his sons are dragged outside of the city and they're stoned to death. And Ahab that afternoon takes a stroll in his new vineyard because by law, if there are no legal heirs to land, the neighbors get to take it. So Ahab has his vineyard. An insatiable desire for more. If you're a Hebrew reader or if you're just a a Bible reader that you've grown up in church, I wonder if this is ringing any bells for you. If you're a Hebrew reader at the time and you're hearing this story for the first time, man, alarm bells are going off. They're like, I feel like I've heard something like this before. The favorite king in the history of Israel up to this point is King David. And just a couple decades earlier, David... While he should have been off at war in the springtime, like every other good king, protecting his people, ensuring shalom, ensuring peace in the land, David decides to cut corners. He skips the workouts. He doesn't go off to war. He, he gets sloppy. And he's on the roof of his palace, and he looks over and, and sees a woman bathing, and her name is Bathsheba. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He looks down at her and says, who is that? And he sends messengers and finds out who she is. They come back and they report that's Bathsheba. God has been good to her. She has a husband named Uriah. Uriah is out fighting the war that you should be at. God has been good to her. Off limits. Stay away, King David. And King David, being the the domineering patriarchal king who didn't check his insatiable appetite for more says, go get her. And he brings her up to his palace and he sleeps with her. And any Old Testament scholar worth their salt would echo me when I say it wasn't consensual. This wasn't Bathsheba's desire or wish. She's married to Uriah. Ahab sees a small vineyard and says, I have to have more, and he figures out a plan to judicially murder Naboth to get what he wants, and David sees a married woman and says, I have to have more, and he orchestrates the murder of Uriah the next time he goes out to battle to get what he wants. The insatiable desire to have more, unchecked acquisitiveness. God tried to get these people ready for this. This is not, it shouldn't have come out of nowhere. Like, they heard this sermon. They, they heard this message. Even if you're not familiar with church and you're new to this, you've probably heard, I'm guessing, about the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, etc. You remember number ten? This is number ten. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, Ahab. His male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God was telling them, beware of the insatiable desire to have more. Growing up, I didn't even know what covet meant. I I knew what the other nine meant, but I was like, covet? It was explained to me this way. It still makes sense. It's wishing for, longing for, craving for something that somebody else has. Something that belongs to somebody else. And this is what God is saying to his people when he says that. He goes, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be nice to you. I'm going to be generous to you. I'm going to let you settle in the land. But but beware. Beware because the enemy is going to come in and he's He's going to speak to something that's deep inside your soul. And the enemy is going to say, hey, the grass is greener over there. The vineyard's better over there. The woman there is better than yours. Be careful because this person's going to come in and say, what you have isn't enough. If you could only get something else, that's where the contentment's at. That's where the happiness is at. God's saying, thou shall not covet. It happened with Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. It happened with David, with Uriah's wife. And it happened with Adam in the Garden of Eden. God puts Adam and his wife Eve in the garden. This is the very beginning of the Bible. And he says, this is paradise. You can have it all. Just don't eat the the fruit from that one tree. And the enemy comes along and says, God's lying to you. He's holding out on you. He's threatened by you. He's scared of you. There's a reason he's holding that back from you. And in the same way that Jezebel brought Ahab into this, Eve brings Adam into this and he takes the fruit and she takes the fruit. They take the fruit and sin, brokenness, chaos, everything that makes you sad came into the world. Everything that makes you grieve came into the world. Everything that is broken, that doesn't make any sense to you, came into the world because somebody didn't check their acquisitiveness. Somebody had an insatiable desire for more. It's a a problem that started thousands of years ago. And then we sit here today, and and we've got to be honest about what we're tempted to believe will make us content that we don't have. We've really got two options. And, And... Your eyes can't be in two places at once. The one option is to just constantly be looking around at what people say you need or or what other people have. And, And there's no way to just constantly be looking around at what everybody else has and not become covetous. That's option number one. Option number two is to look at what's right in front of us, to look what God has already given to us to consider the thousands of gracious gifts that God has given us with our eyes only, grateful, full of gratitude for what God has given us. And in that setting, we can't help but grow to be more content. But your eyes can't be in both places at once. And so maybe this is how I'll say it. Covetousness and contentment cannot coexist. You can't be both at the same time. You're one or the other, and they fight each other. If you are covetous, if you're constantly looking around, contentment dissipates. But if you're focused on what God has given you, man, covetousness begins to go away. So the task then, friends, is not to get the life that we want, but to love the life that we have. The task is not to get the life that we want, it's to fall in love with the life that we have. And that sounds nice, but it isn't easy, especially for those of us that are on Instagram. You know what I mean? When I see that church's building, when I see that church's lobby, they don't just have a hallway, they have a real lobby. When I see the size of that church's staff or the video they made or the one-liner he said, when I'm looking around, I can't help but covet. But the truth is that if I didn't know about any other church, I didn't know churches could have lobbies or buildings. If I didn't know any of that and all I saw was what was right in front of me, that Daniel and McKenna Schultz are here, right? Jorge, you're here, man. And a few minutes ago, I just looked back and we were singing. We're singing praises to God. If this is all I knew, if my eyes were just right here, how could I not be full of gratitude and contentment? Paul said it, and he said it really clear in the New Testament. He said, listen, friends, contentment isn't found in anything that you think you want. He goes, I've been rich. I've been poor. I've had a lot of food. Haven't had any food at all. And I have found that none of those things matter when it comes to contentment. It's about looking at what's right in front of you, not comparing it to what everybody else has. That is where contentment grows. I mean, I, I, made the, I didn't have to Google this. I didn't have to Google what do people want. I just looked inside of my own heart and, and quickly was able to rattle this man, I want a bigger patio. If I didn't know anybody else had a bigger patio, I'd be fine with my patio. My patio rocks. But I've seen other patios, and I've coveted, and I want some other patios. I want kids that don't lose their coats everywhere we go. If I, if I knew every kid lost their coat, I'd love my kids. I do love my kids, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying. I want a 3,000-square-foot house, but if I didn't know they existed... I'd be thrilled to go back to my 1,500-square-foot house. I want a three-car garage, but only because I know they exist. My two-car garage is fine. We play hockey in there every night. It's fine. If I didn't know new cars exist, man, I'd be so content with my 2008 Honda CRV. But I see Teslas every once in a while. I'm like, man... I think to myself, man, they went on a date for what seems to be no reason to the barn. And they posted a picture about it. It's like a Tuesday. And if I didn't know that existed, I'd be perfectly fine in me You get what I'm saying? It's only when we look around that we become these seeds of covetousness and discontentment begin to kind of grow roots in our heart and we, we just start chasing We just start chasing. Couple questions, what are you tempted to covet? What are you tempted to believe will make you happier? What are you tempted to chase? The list is long. Perhaps it's their vacation, or their body, or their clothes, or their commute, or their gym membership, or their salary, or their parents. And it's important for us to admit, make it clear, none of those things Having them is wrong. But not having them and being covetous for them, that is wrong. And it leads to discontentment because covetousness and contentment can't coexist. I'm going to close with a story. Have you heard the story, the parable of the Mexican fisherman in the small fishing village? Have you heard this one? Maybe you have. I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but if it was, it wouldn't surprise me. It goes like this. An American investment banker was at the pier of a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. And inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. And the American complimented the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch him. And the Mexican man replied, only a little while. And the American then asked, well, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more fish? And the Mexican fisherman said that he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. And the American businessman said, what did you do with the rest of your time? And the Mexican fisherman said, I slept late, fished a little bit, played with my kids, took a siesta with my wife, Maria, strolled into the village. I strolled the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my amigos. And the American scoffed. I'm a Harvard MBA, and I could help you. You should spend more time fishing, and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. Proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you'd have a whole fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch... To a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing, and distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, and then eventually New York City, where you will run your expanding enterprise. And the Mexican fisherman said, well, how long will this take? And he said, 10 to 15 years. But what then, asked the Mexican fisherman. And the American laughed. He said, That's the, this is the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. He said, millions. And then what? And the American said, then you would retire early. You could move to a small coastal village where you would sleep late, fish a little bit, play with your kids, take siestas with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play guitar with your amigos. There's a popular and American way of thinking that feeds our insatiable desire for more. To live differently is very different. It's to go against the grain, and if we're not careful, we're just going to spend our whole lives looking around, chasing. The illusion that something else out there is what we need to be happy. Coveting, chasing, unchecked acquisitiveness. So the questions as I close... Are pretty simple. What are you chasing? What's on the list? Could stopping or pausing that allow your heart to see all that God has already given you? Maybe putting your eyes right here is so hard for you. could stopping or pausing that chase give you the space to love the life that you have? Because the task is not to get the life that we want. It's to love the life that we have. To sit in the goodness of God and be content in it. The band's going to come out And they're just going to play some music for two or three minutes as we just consider some of these questions. And uh, let let me pray for you just for a second before they do that. Lord, we confess how easy it is to look around and to just want more stuff, different stuff. It's easy to believe that that's the answer. We all want to be happy nothing wrong with that, but we don't want to chase a mirage. We want the real thing. Would you help us to be honest about this? Would you help us to make courageous decisions, to change course so that we can love the lives we have? for listening to the Three Creeks Church podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.